Hello and welcome to Medieval Murders, the podcast that delves into the world of violent crimes in noisy markets and private parlours, in quiet cloisters and turbulent taverns, among the mighty nobility and starving beggars in 14th century England. In each episode, we tell the story of a single murder recorded by a clerk of the coroner who investigated the case 700 years ago. I'm Nora Eisner and I'm going to lead you through this podcast. With me here again in the studio is Manuel Eisner, Wolfson Professor of Criminology at the University of Cambridge and creator of the Medieval Murder Map. Today we're going to look at insults and we should say at the very beginning that there is going to be some strong language in this episode so it may not be the one to listen to with little ones around. Now, insults come in many shapes. Some are simply words such as asshole, bitch, pig, or wimp, but they also can come in other shapes. They can come in the shapes of cartoons, gestures, sounds, or even body language. Now, historically, London saw many of these types of insults, and it had some words that were used in medieval English like driggle-draggle, fop-doodle, or scobolotcher. And some insults become famous for their targeted powerful imagery. Some examples of these include when Donald Trump insulted Joe Biden by calling him Sleepy Joe. So there is a famous example where that happened at the Blind Beggar Pub in London, when gangster Ronnie Cray shot rival George Cornell in 1966 in East London, allegedly because Cornell used a homophobic slur the day before. But what are insults? What makes them insulting? And where do we feel the pain of an insult? Why do we wish to retaliate, and in some cases even shoot those, who question our good standing, especially when our standing is questioned in front of others? And of course, we want to ask the question of, how did insults work on the streets of medieval England? And how did these lead to murder? Dad, why don't you tell us about the case that we're going to look at today? Well, I've chosen a case that captivated me the first time I read about it. Its main actors are a drunk servant called Alice Cornbeater, her mistress, Eleanor Hellebowl, a fencing master called Roger Skirmisher, Walter the chaplain, and some building workers. It all happens on a Wednesday afternoon on the 30th of August, 1301. We are in the northwest of the city of London, close to the city wall. On the corner of Wood Street and St. Olaf Silver Street, some building workers prepare the ground for a new house built by Thomas Selly. He is a wealthy Skinner who had been Sheriff of London in 1299 and he held several properties in the area. This is what happened in the late afternoon of that Wednesday, according to the jurors. A drunk woman hurls insults at workers in plain daylight and her mistress recruits a chaplain and a fencing master to take revenge. On Friday, after the decollation of St. John the Baptist, on the 1st of September 1301, the coroner and sheriffs were informed that Walter of Elmley, a chaplain, had died of unnatural causes in Wood Street, in the parish of St. Alban Wood Street in the Cripplegate Ward. They summoned a jury from the neighbouring wards and inquired what had happened. The jurors said that late on Wednesday afternoon, Alice Quernbetter saw workmen of Thomas Seeley preparing the ground for a new house, which was to be built on Wood Street at the corner of St. Olav Silver Street. Being drunk, she abused them, calling them treadkiles or pavement stompers. One of the workmen then drew her to himself by the hand and told her she should work and tread the ground with them. 
bumping her maliciously on the ground. Alice then got up and went to her mistress, Eleanor Hellbowl, from whom she rented her house, to complain about the men. Eleanor then went to the building site, calling the men ribalds and other insults. An unknown bypasser reprimanded Eleanor for her language. She abused him, calling him a thief, and he called her a whore. Eleanor threatened him, saying that before night, the matter would be squared. Right, okay. There is quite a lot of insulting going on there. And we have to assume that the coroner only wrote down a brief summary of all of the insults. Of course, not least because the parchment on which he wrote down these insults was very expensive. That's to say that there must have been quite a lot of other bad language that was happening that is not on the record here. But for now, let's focus on what was written down. How many insults, and we're talking both about the words and the actions here, were recorded in the coroner's report? Well, so I've, I've tried to do the counting. And, and if we include all slurs, threats and insults, I count seven separate events. So first, let's start. There is a drunk servant, Alice Cornbuter, who hurls tretkeels and other insults at the building workers. Then the builders pull Alice into the mud, and that's clearly an act of humiliation. Next, Eleanor Hellebowl appears on the scene and she calls the builders rebels and other insults. At this point, a bypasser tells Eleanor to watch her words, which she likely saw as being put down in front of others. What we know for certain is that the attempt at peacemaking doesn't go down with Eleanor. She dubs the bystander a thief and he returns calling her a whore. And in the finale, Eleanor publicly threatens the man who's called her a whore saying that she'll pay him back before the end of the day. Okay, so I know what a thief is, we know what a whore is. Let's start with those insults first and talk about those. Were these already common insults in medieval Europe? Well, yes. I mean, thief and whore were the most common insults at the time. Thief was the most common popular insult against men across medieval Europe. There were other insults like liar, rogue, bastard or knave. And whore was the standard insult for women. Both words were kind of devastating attacks against the other person's good standing in society. Both words are highly gendered, so they were used against either against a man or a woman. However, it's also quite interesting to note that sometimes they were actually mixed together to get the blood boiling. For example, in 1497, we hear of Agnes Beckett of Stratford, that she was charged with defaming Joan Boot by saying, Thou art a whore and a thief, thou hast stolen my geese and my rabbits, and have taken them in Lent. So, by the way, I just want to mention, we know about these cases because insults were prosecuted by the religious courts. So, we have lots of records in this period where people, most often women, went to the consistory courts and accuse somebody else of be, having been insulted. Women would of, people would often strengthen their insults by throwing in colourful adjectives like filthy, dirty, drunken, poxy, platter-faced, rotten, hollow-mouthed, shameful, shitty, wicked and fat-arsed. Aside from these standard insults, there were quite a few original medieval insults I already mentioned or you mentioned, driggle-draggle, fop-doodle, muck sprout, scobolotcher, or wiffle waffle. They sound funny, but they actually could be powerful weapons. So a fopdoodle, for instance, was what today we would call an idiot or a dumbass. 
A driggle-draggle was another word for whore, documented since the late 1500s. And a wiffle-waffle was just somebody who couldn't make up their mind. So if you want to tell me, Dad, make up your mind, say wiffle-waffle. That would really insult me. I love that. I I think it's really safe to say that old or these older words, these older insults are much more fun than the ones that we have today. But let's talk about these older insults, these insults that are no longer used today. So we have two examples in our special case today, which are treadkeel and ribald. Again, very nice sounding words, but what can we actually say about them? What what do they mean? I'll start with the ribald, which is a Middle English word. It has roots in Old French and German, and it's related to the German word reiben or rubbing. The word has sexual references in the sense of being lewd and lecherous. In France, ribot was reused to refer to prostitutes, brothel keepers, and all who frequent haunts of vice. Generally, It just probably means something like a rogue or a scoundrel, a worthless or dishonest person. And then we have this insult, Tretkiel. It is a bit of a mystery. Our case, the one that we just heard, is the only instance in the English language where this word is actually documented. But just bear in mind, people would not insult each other with words that have no meaning for them or that they don't understand. So the builders must have heard something that they found deeply annoying. Soren Lilly, in her book Unfortunate Ends on Murder and Misadventure Misadventure in Medieval England, has proposed a plausible meaning. In Middle English, the word treaden means stomping or treading the ground. So treadkeel may hence mean something like a mud stumper. And that would make sense, because the workers then pull Eleanor into the dirt and ask her to tread the ground herself. However, Soren Lilly points out that treading also has the meaning of mating or fucking. The great medieval author Geoffrey Chaucer, for example, uses the word treadfowl to refer to the monk in the Canterbury Tales in the sense of a henhopper or chicken fucker. So treadkeel may also have meant something like horny fucker. Sounds like you had a lot of fun researching um, these words. So let's talk a little bit about what an insult actually is. Does it matter exactly what word is used or is it more about the tone and the sentiment behind the words? So, for example, do you think that a person who is called a thief actually hears, oh, I'm, I'm being accused of stealing? Or is it less the meaning behind the words and more about the sentiment of them? It's a very good question. I, th- I, think, I think it's a bit of both. At first sight, you would think that the word and its literal meaning actually matters. And I'm sure people heard the latent meaning behind the words. But very often, the insult really just conveys a meaning of you are a bad person in some way. So people who've done research on the psychology of insults have shown that the actual word is sometimes only indirectly related to the message it conveys. For example, consider the insult, you arsehole. Do people actually think about what it means to be called an arsehole and what is behind it. So this question was recently investigated. You know, researchers are interested in all kinds of strange questions. So the psychologist Brinkley Sharp and colleagues at the University of Georgia invited 400 participants and asked them, well, think of the biggest arsehole you know, and then tell me what behaviors this person actually shows. 
And the result was assholes are just generally unpleasant people. They're aggressive, angry, full of themselves, argumentative, rude, irresponsible, manipulative, hypocritical. So they're all kinds of bad things. One interesting thing was that most people, when they think of an arsehole, is that they think of middle-aged white men. So that was quite interesting, I thought. So what this shows, however, is that all insults point at something negative that humiliates, excludes, demeans, or provokes. But the literal meaning probably doesn't matter that much, or at least not always. What matters is the intention, the emotional charge, if you will, that is attributed to them. So especially, and I think that's really at the core of insults, is the intention to undermine a person's public standing, to make them lose their face. That is such an interesting study. Can you say a little bit more about the effect they have on the person who's being insulted? And maybe let's put this back into the context of what you said at the beginning, that insults are particularly bad or particularly effective when they're said in front of others. So why exactly is that? Well, one way to think about it is what do we really care about when we interact with others? And one of the things that we really care about is how we present ourselves to others. We want to be seen as respectable. We want to be seen as somebody who is, 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 is a respected member of our group. And this presentation of ourselves is also often called face. In many different languages, it's called the face that we show to other people. And we don't want to lose our face when we interact with others. So the face is many things. But basically, it means that we want to be seen as reliable, trustworthy, healthy, attractive, respected people. And we pay attention to whether others give us the respect that we want to be receiving. So what insults do is to threaten and destroy our face. They devalue, degrade, disrespect, stigmatize us. And they make us feel two key negative moral emotions, anger and shame. Uh, hang on. So what do you mean by moral emotions? So moral emotions doesn't mean moral in the sense of I'm going to tell you what is good and what is bad. Moral emotions are emotions that psychologists have developed to describe emotions such as disgust, pride or compassion that are associated with intuitions about what is wrong and right. So Insults, in the sense of moral emotions, are signals that show we are treated badly or unfairly. And anger and shame are some of these basic emotions that motivate us to take corrective action. So basically, the emotions are what happens in our brain to signal to us, this is not right. This is not what should happen to us. So they happen very quickly. They're not thoughts. We don't have to think about these emotions. They're just happen to our body as something that triggers us to take corrective action. What do you mean by corrective action? Corrective action in what sense? Well, there are various ways in which we can respond to an insult. Shame, on the one hand, leads to behaviors that try to avoid the origin of the insult. Anger, in contrast, is something that energizes us. We wish to pay back, aggress against the other. But always bear in mind, anger which is so important in the context of 
violence and aggression is a very complex emotion. It's not just one thing. It includes, for instance, a change in our facial expression. It includes changes to our body, such as increased heart rate. But it also includes higher arousal and then thoughts of retaliation and revenge. So we start to ruminate about what we could do to pay back to this person. So recent brain studies, for instance, show that many areas in the brain are associated with the experience and the regulation of anger. I just wanted to add here that the way we respond to insults is not the same in all human societies. So when Nisbet and Cohen were doing their research in the United States, they were saying that southern states were more like honor cultures, while northern states were more individualistic cultures. And that's where, where their original experiments came from. In Europe, we had a similar divide in the 19th century, that in the south of Italy, it was much more an honor culture. Sardinia was much more of an honor culture. Um, Greece would have been much more of an honor-based culture. While up there in the north, where urbanization, modernization, industrialization had changed the way society functions, were much more individualistic cultures. Okay, so, so far the events that happened on the 30th of August 1301 that we talked about sounds like a relatively trivial argument with no more harm done than people getting angry and shouting. But of course this is the Medieval Murder Podcast and it needs an actual murder. So for our listeners, they probably want to know what happened next. So here is what the jury had to say. She then sent for three men. Walter, the chaplain, a tenant of hers called Roger Skirmisher, fencing master, and an unknown person. She asked them to avenge her on the stranger, whom they would find in the tavern of Agnes of Nottingham. The three men bought a bundle of wood for a farthing, about a fourth of a labourer's day wage, from which each man furnished himself with a stick and hurried to the tavern. At the entrance, they met a certain John of Melksham. Walter the chaplain asked him if he was the one who had abused his mistress, Eleanor, and immediately started hitting John on the head and arm. John then drew a dagger, seeing which, Walter turned to draw his knife with his right arm. However, John struck Walter with the dagger under the shoulder, inflicting a wound an inch and a half broad and reaching to the heart, of which Walter immediately died. The jurors said that nobody was present except Walter and the aforesaid evildoers. After the crime, John de Melksham immediately fled to the church of St. Olav near the tower, whence he escaped at night. Roger Skirmisher fled. The jury did not know whither. The possessions of John Melksham were valued at 29 shillings, 3 pence. The jurors did not know anything about the stranger. He had no possessions. Okay, wow, that is um, a lot to unpack there. So... From what we hear, it sounds like these three men were just very excited about these three wooden sticks that they had just bought on Wood Street, that they just started to beat up a random person who came out of this tavern um, without really giving that person a chance to respond to any of these accusations. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's exactly my impression. I mean, from, from what we can read, they didn't wait for a response. They just started hitting that person who came out of this tavern. So at this point, I mean, the insults were no longer really a factor. They were just the thing that triggered the catalyst behind the actions that were to follow. Yes, I think that's a fair summary. Um, so, so they just started hitting that person. That person came out of the pub. 
Unfortunately, they had picked the wrong person. So once this escalated, that other person pulled out his knife. Some, one person from the gang of three pulled out their knife. The other person was quicker. And John of Melksham ended up killing one of the three. It's interesting also looking at the people who were mentioned in what we just heard. So my, maybe this is unfair, but my stereotype of women in the Middle Ages would have been that they were pretty much these powerless part of society and they were, they were part of this hugely patriarchal society. But the women that we just heard about sound quite assertive. The drunk woman shouts insults at the building workers, the mistress doubles up and shouts at the people as well. She then recruits a gang of chaplain and a fencing master to take revenge on her behalf. And it all ends in a stabbing outside of a tavern that was run and owned by another woman, Agnes of Nottingham. So it seems like there's a lot of representation of women in the story. Is this kind of representation of women representative of women in medieval London? The story that we just heard in terms of the role of women is in some ways quite extraordinary, as you just said. At the same time, historians such as Caroline Barron have called this the golden age of women in, in London, in the sense that they were quite visible in public space. There was discrimination. It was a patriarchal society. But at the same time, they were highly visible on markets. They had trades. And they had quite a lot of agency, if you will, at the time. So contrary to what is often assumed, these large cities of late medieval England offered women quite a lot of own space. So especially Eleanor Hellebowl comes across as quite a strong character. So Walter the chaplain calls Eleanor his mistress. Both Roger Skirmisher and Alice Cornbeater are tenants of hers. So she seems to have owned a substantial house. We even know a little about Roger Skirmisher because a few years later after the events, He's again mentioned, again in connection, by the way, with some wrongdoing in a different document as a person who is running a fencing school and leading young people into bad behaviors. So, so he's, she's recruited quite a group of dodgy characters, it seems, who she can ask to act on her behalf to restore her honor. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? The fact that someone shows up in multiple reports either shows that London is very small or was very small or that he was a true criminal mastermind. I, I just wanted to make one comment here. And that, I think that's quite interesting now that we have the maps of the three cities. It really seems to me that this active role of women in different cases, we also have the case of Ella Fitzpain that we talk about in the second podcast, is quite interesting because these cases only happen in London. There is nothing similar happening in Oxford and there is nothing similar happening in York. So maybe it was really this big city context of London that gave women somewhat more agency than in other cities across England at the time. So finally, could you talk a little bit more about what happened to the perpetrator? Well, I found out something out about the perpetrator, John the Melksham. So this guy who just happened to come out of the tavern in the wrong moment. And then, first of all, what we hear in the story is that immediately he fled to the church of St. Olaf near the tower, whence he escaped by night. And his possessions were valued at 29 shillings and 3 pence, which by the t at this time would have been quite a lot of money. 
So that's a sizable amount of money. He was definitely not a poor man. And I could trace him further. Oh, I should mention here, he sought sanctuary in the church of St. Olaf near the tower. That's an odd thing to do. And I was wondering why he did it. I don't know why he did it. Because St. Olaf by the tower is about a kilometer away from where the event happened. So he ran through the entire city to get to this church. Maybe because he had some friends there, because if he wanted to escape, he would have preferred to seek sanctuary in a church where somebody might have helped him to get out of the church later on. So we find him again. A year later, after the summer night, there is a brief entry in the patent rolls. So the patent rolls are documents where important government decisions are recorded, and that includes royal pardons for wrongdoing. And that entry relates to a little town far up in the north in Northumbria. It's called Morpeth. And the entry in the patent rolls reads, Pardon by reason of his service in Scotland to John of Melksham for the death of Walter the Emily, chaplain. So, John Melksham fled all the way up to Northumberland, where he had been serving in the Scottish-English wars that had started in 1296, and then he gets a pardon because he was fighting the Scots. So fighting the Scots was considered a good thing? <laughs> yes, very much so. I think that's the message. He got a free ride for killing somebody. So other than that, is there anything else that we can learn from the story? What we've learned is that there are these cycles of insult, humiliation and violence that Eleanor Hellebowl experienced and that speak through so many other cases in the medieval murder map. Now, these cycles still exist today. They feed bullying in schools. They're behind violence in night, nightclubs. They are what enrages us on streets and in parking lots. They can motivate revenge killings and mass shootings, and sometimes also political violence, all the way leading up to wars. However, there are remedies, and I just want to mention three of those. On the side of those who do the insulting, a remedy that has been proposed for centuries is civility, courtesy, and politeness. So starting in the Middle Ages, there is a long, big effort to instill behavior standards that allow frictionless behavior in public space, in cities, among strangers, which is not a natural thing to happen. On the side of those who are insulted, research has shown that we can learn to control this sense of anger that blasts our brain when we are provoked. So, for instance, new research suggests that the brains of people who have been previously trained to practice their self-control had a stronger activation of areas associated with emotion control when they were insulted. And finally, on the side of wider society, one remedy is a shift away from a culture of honor that fosters revenge and retaliation towards a culture that supports victims and protects them from abuse and slurs. That sounds like a very good and optimistic conclusion. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast on insults. Please like and subscribe to the pod and give us a review if your podcast app allows it. If you have any questions about that episode, drop us an email at murdersmedieval at gmail.com. Medieval Murders is hosted by me, Nora Eisner, and Professor Manuel Eisner. It's produced by Steve Hankey, and the historical segments are voiced and sound designed by Charlie Inman.